Okay, cool. All right, so um, when I was talking to Anya and Sekunda about systems that the Black family creates, um, it all kind of came down to this phrase that sticks in my mind, which is um, Black women love their sons, but raise their daughters. And that really means that um, Black women teach their daughters like what it means to run a house and, and the systems by which we understand value, like what to value. Because, okay. you know, running a house basically comes down to like knowing what to value when, you know, and helping people cope with like loss or whatever existential life problems. You know, like if someone had a baby, then, you know, running your house means helping them with that. Right. Um, and so more or less, like, um, what I just kept hearing, though, like not ever really directly being said was this fear of death constantly. Because mm. um, like Anya, she was like, when she was looking for a house, she wanted to make sure that she didn't live in like the woodlands because she wanted to make sure that people were used to seeing black children walk around, you know? Yeah. So that's a way without actually saying it, she was like, I don't want my child to be murdered because they're not used to black people, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. And yeah. then Secunda, she said something that was interesting, which was like, she said when she was a young woman, young, like teenager, she said she noticed that the black men in her life didn't know their place. They didn't know what to do with their lives. Hmm. And, you know, like she didn't say this directly, but I think she was hinting at like, just kind of like this, the best way I can put it is like, you know, these nineties movies about like black men, like let's say like baby boy or something like that. And like okay. the implicit understanding in the movie is that like these black men are gonna die somehow mm. like mm. they're in a gang they're on the street and they got shot down by the cops you know like that's just the theme of this of the of the story and yeah. so then you watch as this black family with specifics on the black male navigates this world where like they could die at any minute basically right yeah um, it's kind of true you know um but i mean it's true for everybody but like with black males, I mean, like in my generation, we came up and, you know, I think it was 18 or whatever age, a lot of people weren't making it as that. So we were hearing this. So people are telling us this and we're watching people like die around us and hearing about people getting killed. So like mm -hmm. for a while, um, when I was young, when I would think about dying, it's crazy because I was thinking I was gonna get shot and die. You know what I mean? That's, that's how it would happen. Not that I was actually doing something that warranted being shot, or even if I was, a gun was involved. That's how my mind was thinking. I think that's how a lot of me and my friends' minds were thinking at the time. Because you, you know, we are we're teenagers and we've already been around gun violence, been places where people are shooting, been shot at, had guns drawn on us, all type of things. So it just seemed when you hear about when we would talk about death then as a teen, we're like, yeah, get murdered. We wouldn't even call it a murder. Somebody kill you, you smoke, something like that. So yeah, um, that was that was real, you know, for a lot of people. At least, at least I can speak that for growing up in South Central and and I'm sure quite a few other cities. You know, uh, 
young men, you know, which I'm 50 now. So when I was a teen, I felt that way. Like from a teen, probably all the way up through until I got married. I think when I got married and had children, I think I was more on some like, I kind of didn't, I don't want to say I didn't care. I was a little more reckless where I had, I had let it soak in with me. It was like, okay, well, that's how it might happen. You know what I mean? It's Cause it was just me. I wasn't thinking about my mom, my sister, my father, my cousins. I wasn't thinking about them that way because it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going through this thing on my own. Nobody else is with me. So I wouldn't really wouldn't think about them, not anything against them. But I was just thinking about myself and like, okay, if something happens to me, you know, it's just me. It's cool. You know, but then, you know, you're married, have some kids. And I'm, I'm concerned about my children. And it's a trip that the concern went from them being without me to my children being of age. And I'm concerned about them, you know, and I'm sure they probably are the same with me because I've had some instances where they're like, damn, you okay? You know, because I go out and they're worried about me as a black man, police, just people in the street, all of these things. So it's like a, it's a endless cycle, it seems, because even though I guess my fear, I don't know if I want to call it a fear, my constant worry of it changed, it's still there. Even if it's not constant, it's still there. You know, like my kids leave, like my kids are getting ready to leave in a minute. They're driving now, you know, Aww. so, right. So just imagine after, you know, I, I know I'm running on a bit, but like, you know, after, uh, you know, this thing in, uh, in Buffalo that just happened, where all these black people get murdered, the next day, my kids group up and they go to the store. But I can't stop them from going. I mean, I could, but what is that really going to do? You know, it's just a feed of fear of my own and give them one too. So I just still have to let it go. You know what I mean? You know, pray on it, talk to the ancestors and just, you know, pray and hope that we're not those people, you know, but um, yeah. it's something that's always on my mind. Yeah. Honestly, what I've come to learn, understand is that death is on everyone's mind. Like even when yeah, you right. weren't thinking about your family and you're only thinking about yourself and what you would do if you were to, you know, end up in a life or death situation, like your family was also dealing with it, maybe not sharing. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing with your children. Like I'm the the Buffalo mass shooting is is news. Everyone sees it. So everyone's dealing with it, whether or not we're talking about it. And right uh this is a mainstay that's what i want to say like ever since enslavement even before enslavement like the idea and the constant reality of death has yeah. always been a part of black life mm -hmm. um and so like again what when i was talking to other the other um people during this storytelling segment what I came to understand is that we built systems, whether or not we're thinking about it, we do it like yeah. the way, like, again, the way you run your home, like another way of saying that is the systems that you use to manage the people in your life. And, um, you know, the, the systems that we use to manage death, because yeah. I think that's a defining characteristic of African centered, like family life and thinking 
Um, mm-hmm. Like we, we hold death close. Um, right. It's not like when someone dies, it's over. Um, mm-hmm. We we always have them somehow with us. So whether making shrines and altars, whether or not we're acknowledging them in like uh, you know ritual practices, or you know just like kind of every day just talking to your mom if she's passed yeah. away to that loved one. It's a right. part of our life. Yeah. Um, yeah. It definitely I, is. I wanted to dive into that. Okay. Because like the connection between life and death is is in, in more than one way. Um when I was thinking about it. Um for example, Anya, she asked me to remember what it was like to give birth and I remember telling her you know, I meant to write something down when it happened, but mm. then life got in the way. You know, I had to raise mm. right. child, and it's not like I got a a moment of respite to like go and write. You know, it was just like immediately. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the trauma of the whole ex- experience kind of gets pushed backwards, and you keep living. Mm. And yeah. this is actually something that Denise pointed out once, where it's just like. Uh, any trauma, whether it be life or death, any trauma that occurs, you tend to push it back and just like keep living. So right. something that happened last week feels like it happened a lot longer or something that happened a year ago, like you just get disoriented in time. Yeah. Um, Most definitely. Your mind plays with it. But I did, I did write something down. Okay. And I wanted to read it. All right. Um, So during Black Storytelling Month, it seemed to me that we spoke indirectly about death. It can be heard in Anya's remarks about finding her neighborhood, finding a neighborhood for her son. Again, it's a kind of conversation about Black men having no direction. And this specific fear, this specific fear um, played out in stories in the 90s, Boys in the Hood, Boys in the um, uh, Tales from the Crypt. That one overt stories about black male death, and this theme is um, crammed into shows like Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen Atlanta? Yes, yes, I'm caught up with it. Yeah, yes, I'm watching it. Yes. So the thing that gets me about Atlanta is that it's it's like this comedy bit, except it's not funny. It's like mm-hmm. the black people in the story seem to be in reality. They seem to have a sense of like what is and what isn't real. Right. And everyone around them is like really absurd. Like yeah. <laughs> and doing crazy things that like are 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 unnerving to me. Like Atlanta feels like a horror story in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, I like Atlanta. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Like when you mention Atlanta and like the uh it's like I like the idea of them, how they wrote it, where there's really no separation kind of in reality. Like where, like there's a part early on where a guy, they're talking about an invisible car, you know, then they're in a parking lot and somebody get hit by an invisible car. But nobody does anything extra. Like, oh shit, it was an invisible car. It's like, oh, one of those, you know, and and things keep flowing. And I like that about the series, like things happen, just like we have things that people would consider and I, I can only speak for black people that happened to us that I can really only speak for me that happened to me that are so weird and way out 
that I probably don't even speak to people about it. And a lot of them have to do with death, but they happen and I know that they happen. I don't care what anyone says or what anyone feels about it. That's, a, that's part of my reality. You know, and that's what I like about Atlanta. That's, that's part of their reality. No matter how weird it looks from us looking at it or how the other people in the, you know, other cast people are, that are playing their parts look at it, that's that reality. Their bubble is very interesting. But I mean, that's, that's real world to me. You know, things are so way out sometimes that it's unbelievable. Like some of the things that we'll probably talk about or your grandkids, my grandkids, great grandkids will talk about that happened like this past week will seem unbelievable, but you know, we're living in them. So we know it's real, you know, and somebody looking out, looking into us will be like, what the hell? But we're just like, like now, let's imagine how some people will like, they had this conversation and the whole thing they didn't talk about was Buffalo. You know what I mean? It would may seem odd to people later to find a distance from Buffalo happening and seeing this conversation to see that our whole conversation won't just be about that. You know, when well, other people will be like. That's, uh-huh. that's the point. Like what you're describing is exactly what I'm, what I feel like is the overall theme of black life and black storytelling and black living. It's like, it's like somehow we have a system where we understand what, what we thought or what we understood was real. Mm-hmm. Um, but the world is absurd and it's yeah. absurd because it does all these things that center our death, that center our disenfranchisement, that center our dehumanization, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we know like none of this stuff is true, yeah. but somehow the world is just like, no, this is true. Like, yeah. I remember like, one of the funniest things I ever, when I was younger was reading like speeches by like Frederick Douglass. And it's not funny in, in that I thought it was like, ha ha, laugh out loud. But it was like, again, this phenomena of being like the, the only one that sees reality while the rest of the world is really absurd. Because mm. like Frederick Douglass, he literally said in a speech, he was like, you don't think I'm human? Like dogs right. can see I'm human. I could walk mm-hmm. up to a dog right now and it would like say, oh, look, there's my master. There's my human, you know, t- caretaker. Mm. But right. I, I, I walk up to another person who's white and they're like nah that ain't human it's like yeah. what like that yeah. is absurd yeah so crazy yeah definitely and, and it's the absurdity that has built the world that we live in which is mm-hmm. why it's, it's necessary for us to have systems that are our own because it seems like our our systems are the only ones that actually preserve life and mm-hmm. hold like a steady narrative of what is real while uh, whereas everything is everything else subject is subject to change you know what i'm saying like yeah like let's talk about what's happening in the government right now mm-hmm. like the government is legitimizing white supremacy things that happened like today just 10 years ago would have been crazy how could right. that even happen 20 years ago uh you think you're talking about some other country you know Mm-hmm. where like people are are openly talking about like white supremacist um ideas and and working hard to like do all these things to make sure that like black people people of color just are are even closer to death yeah so, that that's the central core right that's the central core like we live in an absurd world that centers black death and it, mm-hmm. it's absurd but that's what it is. 
Yeah. And I, I remember when I was talking to my cousin, Essie, um, Essie's, she's probably a little bit older than you are. Um, she was like a teenager in 1970. And she mm-hmm. said like black community was central to our solidarity, right? It, it was something that helped us um, survive Jim Crow. But um, the, the more we get past this idea of what the black community used to be, because like black community isn't the same in my opinion, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. nobody's required to, to opt into being black. Even if you're black, you're not required to. Um, right. Like practicing the values of being black right mm-hmm. uh, i have family members right now who if you were to ask them for help they wouldn't give it but they're they're, they're very quick to ask for help like things that are solidarity like i just need right. this i just need that and if you're a black person who believes in black values you're thinking i believe in my community i believe in supporting them right yeah but yeah. It, it doesn't get returned and so like there's no accountability and without accountability you lose you lose community, right? Yeah, 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 I agree. So I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a video of this young girl and she's made this rap about not watching kids. You know, she, you know, she's rapping about, I'm watching, I'm not watching your kids, da, 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 da. And you know, everybody's passing around and it's funny because the rap is, but like when I saw it, I it, it just reminded me of how like the black family is so disbanded where when, we are supposed to watch each other's kids. You know, like it's a duty. Like I have children. If if one of my cousins came by and felt enough to be like, hey, I trust you to watch my kids. Can you watch my kids? If somebody's here to do it, yeah, for sure. You know, for sure. I grew up where there were people that watched me, that watched other people. That's just a thing that we did, you know? Mm-hmm. So I can even see that becoming a thing. Like, I ain't watching no damn kids. Well, who's going to watch them? Then you when then we're concerned about all these other things that happen to our children, even though they can happen with family, but it's, it's likely to happen with someone else too. But we have we walked away. It's like we we're forgetting what family is. When I moved here 16 years ago, I was excited about coming back to the South, you know, from LA, because I, I had a thing in my head that the family, the black family structure was so much stronger in the South because that's what I remember. That's what we hear about. You know, your people came from somewhere. You would figure that when you got there, that core was still there. I got here and I was I was disappointed because it, it it's not true, you know? And now I can look and see how that it definitely was done on purpose. And where, if you wanted to take something apart, where would you go? you go to the root. So while most of us are elsewhere, thinking that everything is great living, they were in the South and in our homes and in these places, helping disband the black family, you know? So we, when, cause we don't, where's our anchor? At one time we had an anchor, we had a grandmother, a great grandmother. Those things have changed so drastically where a grandmother won't watch a kid or a great grandma won't watch a kid. And it's not, I don't just want to make this about watching kids. I, it just seems like the position in our families has changed so drastically, you know, from a thing like watching kids, from a thing like, a cousin helping a cousin from, a, you know, like basic stuff. You mean you can't come by your family house and get something to eat if you're hungry? It's not even a thing you think about. You'd rather go to someone else than to family. You know, that's a problem. And I think a lot of us deal with that. 
I mean, I didn't go anywhere. I was here. I've still been here. And I, and I, I can speak to what you're saying because when I was younger, it's it very normal to babysit everyone's children. They all just yeah. came over. If you have mm -hmm. the resources, yeah. uh, you were like a safe haven, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and beyond that, like I, I, I can even attest to like this idea of like family being something that is reciprocal. And that's right. the thing. That's what I'm saying. Like yeah. black women raise their daughters but love their sons which mm. is like this statement to me that really means like it's like you say i had this son but i know that i can't keep him in mm. some way i know that i can't have him learn and grow and stay with me so i lo love you but i understand that at some point you're going to be taken or some point mm. you're going to go you know it's yeah. almost like making peace with that uh, mm. But like I, I raise my daughter because I know that she's going to be here and she's going to take care of me and then the people who need help as well. Right. And I think that, again, that comes down to accountability and, and that, that core has gone away because of finances and like the reciprocal nature of community. Like if, mm -hmm. if you're a Black woman who's just been taking care of people and the, the moment that you need help, you can't mm. ask someone like, uh, hey, remember when I babysitted you when you were little? I have a daughter. You think you can watch her? Girl, I don't watch children. There's no right. reciprocity. Um, yeah. So like that, that quickly unravels any kind of community. And again, yeah. it just brings into question like what is community? And Anya, she did touch on that. Like she really did say something like, I think being a black woman means you have to learn how to work with the flow of it. So when someone comes into your life and they don't have any accountability, you have to be okay with telling them to go. And then you also have to be okay with this idea of like constantly moving around. Like she equated it to like black women in the past who would have children and then like have to run away from an enslaved state. Like it's just a part of what it means to bring a, bring a life into the world as a black person. You know right. that you're going to have to constantly move and you know that you can't trust the people, even if they look like you, even if they're a part of your family, you just have to constantly be hitting refresh on every single relationship and constantly having to like, um, I guess, play politics to find people who you feel would be a part of your community. But yeah. there's no stability in that, I don't think. Yeah, that's that's a bummer. And um I hate the idea of that. And I, I have people that I've dealt with in different relationships where I realize it's like, I'm always the one to bring stuff to the party. You never bring anything. You know what I mean? And it's like, some people don't know any better. So I think in some instances, we need to see if, is, is this something that we can teach someone that we love or someone that's around us or maybe even bring it to their attention? Because it's different when somebody does something and they don't know that they're doing it they're used to doing it because they've probably been around other people that there's no reciprocity with so it's, it's normal to them then they come around people like us where we're like hey giving and it's like hey i'm noticing that it's we're not doing this back and forth here so sometimes i think you need to stop and tell people and have a conversation which could be definitely a hard conversation where it's like i don't think that you're giving what i'm giving you then it could be like tip for dad oh you mean that if i you give me something that well, no, that's not what I'm saying. You know, because it's not an actual physical give. It can be emotion, anything. And usually 
if someone brings that to you, that means it's been happening for such a long time that they're to the edge, to the end of their wit, where it's, that's it. I have to tell you something about it. So I'm saying, I think we as black people and people in general, we need to double check before we check out of some things, you know, cause we, I think, cause I wouldn't want like with my children to say they're in a type of relationship where they're not being reciprocal. Maybe they don't know that they're not being reciprocal. So I'd, I, I would appreciate someone bringing it to their attention, you know? So like if I'm doing it, I would appreciate if someone brought it to my attention, you know, cause we can't keep just leaving places. We'll run out of places to go. We'll run out of friendships, run out of circles, run out of all of these things. Then we'll get used to just being alone and we'll teach being alone to everyone around us. So they're not expecting anything from anyone. And I think we should be able to expect things from people. And people are like, you know, you shouldn't expect. Well, I, as a human, you know what I mean? I believe that just like in general, we should be cordial with each other and have a, a, a thing that's just nature of being like, hey, hi, a simple thing, a hi you know, which can turn into more. Yeah, so I, I just think we need to expect more from each other and and, and and knowing and expecting sometimes you're not gonna get it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You may not get those things, but that's fine that if you don't get them, but in some instances I expect it. And if I don't get it, I'm gonna ask about it. Then if it's something that was like, whoa, I see me and this person are definitely not on the same page, then it's time to move around. But you know, I, I just don't wanna run just from the first instance, you know? So I think I agree with, I know I agree with you. I think that's something that was, something that was like kind of, I, I asked the question, this process that you just described sounds like the process of being a leader, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're the leader of an organization and you're working with a bunch of people, you just need to be like, hey, um, these are the expectations. Um, you know, I need you to make sure that you're bringing this in. Like, these are the things that I need if you're going to be a part of this, this workplace, this community, right? Yeah. And you need to have open conversations. Like, um, you need to be candid with people. Don't be yeah. judgmental, but be candid. Right. Be like, this is what I need. This is what needs to happen so that we can grow together. And mm -hmm. if someone doesn't want that, then that's fine that they can go. And mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, that's, that's, if you want to call it training, like that's the kind of training that I received when mm -hmm. I was a child. Um, my mother was big on responsibility. She was like, don't ever change your phone number because if something important mm -hmm. happened and people can't reach you, then you can't be there for the important moments or right. make sure that you always have food, even if yeah. it's just some ramen noodles in the cupboard because you never know who might need it or any of that. Um, yeah. Just like this kind of, basically this need to always be on alert and prepared for right. something that might happen. Um, that, that was what I learned, what it meant in my family to be like this, this quote unquote leader, this daughter that my mom really wanted. And, and I think all of that is, it just got eroded over time because I, th I think again, the, the, background, the background to it is, is death, right? Because mm. yeah. Like cousins in my family got arrested. So people are in jail and now, you know, people aren't talking to each other because, because of that situation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a couple of my aunts were addicted to hard drugs. And because of that experience of 
like going through that life experience now even even now when they're much older no longer on drugs like nobody wants to interact with them they're like pariahs yeah um, there's it, it seems like there's no coming back from that um, that's horrible but it's true yeah and i mean beyond that like if you're seen to be somehow controversial like in my family they don't want to interact with you because they don't want to get in trouble like mm. oh there's shatana again talking about this afrocentric nonsense like all i know is that she don't make enough money and mm. like if i if i mess around with her i might just be poor too <laughs> <laughs> my mother doesn't know what i do right now my mother does not understand or know what i do and it's it, you know it's kind of disheartening honestly because she I didn't follow a path that everyone else followed. You know, okay, I went to college, did that. Then after that, I didn't, I didn't follow the rest of the path. And it was kind of like, wait a second, you aren't gonna do this, that, and the other, or how are you gonna live? Well, I'm 50, I'm still living, I have a family, everything is fine. Who can't, who doesn't want some more money? You know, the person with the most money in the world is still like, I can use some more. You know, I, I'll, I'll take some more, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But that does not, make us who we are or at least it, it it shouldn't you know i don't even know how i went on this thing with my mom about this but she she really doesn't know what i what i do and it's interesting because she just got on facebook and i'll watch her look at my stories so she'll see photography and stuff but she won't say anything about it because in her mind she can't relate how that can make money you know what i mean that's a pipe dream you know that's a california dream where people oh you want to be an actor you want to shoot movies and stuff she can't see like, oh, I don't even think she can see us. Obviously she can't. She can't see that what I'm doing, I'm teaching my children, you know? So I'm giving them a pathway too, to a whole nother lane of things where they can take care of themselves and help take care of other people. But that's not what they're used to. My mother, she went to college. She taught for a thousand years or however long it was, you get your pension and that's it. You know, and those things just don't, I just don't think that works anymore or it doesn't work for everybody. It's a model that, it's a model that is rapidly not viable. Um, but you know, again, I wanna stay with this theme of life and death. Like yeah. when I talk to Valerie, who is all about archiving and archiving our stories, storytelling is a way of keeping things alive. Um, mm. Even after people are, are long gone, like a lot of things that we have either archives or the the objects and the items that they left behind. Pictures, right. cookie jars, whatever your parents kept and didn't get rid of, that that happens to be the, their archive because like a lot of things don't really get archived in black families. Um, mm -hmm. And so when I'm when I'm thinking about art, I'm, I'm just understanding that art is a form of communication and it's the only yeah. communication that we use to archive ourselves. Because right. like 300 years after I'm long gone, I don't know if anyone's going to remember me, but mm -hmm. they might keep a piece of art and that right. might be the only thing that's left of me. That might be my only archive. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. um, and teaching our children this is also a part of our system. Teaching our children this storytelling, this form of communication to keep us alive, it's, it's something that's very old, um, yeah. something that we came here with. Right. And... Um, Hmm. But death, I think death takes away from our creativity. 
because mm. if you see that you're poor and the only thing that's going to keep you from not being poor is to get in line and get a job then you lose your creativity and poverty is equivalent to death for black people like yeah. i had this crazy experience once when i was like 24 25 i was living on the east end in, in houston i was out walking my dog i didn't have a didn't have a phone i also was out walking my dog so i had i did, I, did, I wasn't dressed nice you know mm-hmm. i just had on yeah. like whatever pjs that i have yeah. and i thought a man was following me so i ran and i ran and i ran and i found these two women who were like hispanic or something and i you know looking crazy you know just yeah. out of my house in flip-flops just being like oh my god i think i'm being followed i don't have a phone can i use your phone to call mm. you know i'm not i don't feel safe and these women were like they didn't want to talk mm. to me they're mm. like oh my god <laughs> i don't right. want to talk to and I, and in my head maybe that might be my own insecurity but i'm thinking like oh i don't look nice oh i don't mm-hmm. ha- i have on flip-flops oh you know like i'm i'm big and i'm black and mm-hmm. i look raggedy so i scare these women but mm-hmm. like that's what i'm talking about like poverty yeah. itself is like because of the the surreal world the unreal world that already puts blackness um into a into a death spiral <laughs> if you don't look yeah. like you're equated with money or equated with whiteness then like that is also going to kill you you know yeah that's white supremacy that that is how they kill you know they kill you financially yeah, that's, at least that's one of the ways they they can stop families from making money for generations and people don't even realize and not noticing what's actually happening it's like no they're they grab us like by the uh testicles of funding where it's like no that's it for you. This is, this is the most you can do. Like when you look at like housing and things like that, which are necessary things, but they set it up where it's like, okay, if I have housing, my kids can get it after me. So there are some of us that will not work or won't take a job or make a certain amount to make sure we can stay secure and have a place to stay, which in turn leads to gener- Cause you know, wealth is generational. We have to make the wealth. If, so if somebody doesn't start it and be willing to be like, fuck it, I'm broke, I'm going to make it. How can we ever get it? You know, if we just, if we constantly just take these little crumbs, it's like, here you go, just, just stay alive long enough. You know what I mean? So we get tax money from you. Stay alive long enough to pay people in your neighborhood that don't even live in your neighborhood and make sure they're wealthy. You know, then after that, you can die. You know, we don't care. You know, and that's what happens to a lot of us. You know, we, uh, like you say, we, yeah, they're, they're killing us financially. That's one of the first deaths. We don't even see it happening. So I think now we're at this point, because like, again, I what I do is I just journal. Like I, I've been really thinking about this for a long time. Yeah. And so when I was thinking about life and death, I started saying like, I actually take my life really seriously because I kind of saw this when I was younger. Like yeah. if I don't study and get good grades i don't go to college i can't get a job if i don't have a job i'm going to be in poverty if i'm in poverty i'm going to be like my aunt who can't make any money who's homeless and if i'm homeless i'm going to be on the street if i'm on the street i'm going to get arrested i'm going to be in jail blah blah blah. so i've taken my life super seriously every single decision like the men i'm with if i don't find a black man then i might end up in a bad relationship because white people treat white white people treat black women crazy like and i've experienced it other people of other 
races or whatever race consciousness that they have, they treat black people like they're crazy. Sometimes it's not always true, but sometimes. And so for me, again, just like Anya, I'm like, who am I dating? Who am I talking to? Where am I living? It's like every single life decision is literally life or death. And I, yeah. I don't think I'm the only one. I feel like yeah. everyone who's black, they, they have this invisible understanding that like small things that should be inconsequential, like what food am I eating? You know, what apartment did I live in? You know, who, who are the friends I made at school? Like these can ultimately lead to your death. Yeah, yeah, because like as I'm talking to you, I'm looking outside and I see these cars passing out of this driveway in front of me. And every day I have to, I'm concerned about my children, my wife and myself leaving and coming and leaving our home because of something that white supremacy is built across the street from my house that makes it dangerous for us. So like daily, I have to have this thought because I've already had situations where I had to chase people away from my house with a gun. Somebody looking in this window right in front of me in the middle of the night with his pants down. You know, so these things, you know what I mean? So what do we, what do I do? Do we up and leave our house that we buy? No, it's not no. that easy. So we're here. So now I have to, kind of be in charge and bear this weight of security. You know, where it's like, okay, when really I can't do it. All I can do is just tell everybody what we shouldn't, what we should try to do. But then it's a worrying fact, like I'm telling you daily, where it's like, okay, are these dudes gonna be over here shooting? I'm hearing gunshots. Oh, I hear somebody got killed down the street. Such and such happened. All of these things that we're hearing, like right in our own little bubble, then we hear about Buffalo bubble. We hear about California bubble. And all of these parts, you know, it's, we wake up to it. Like you say, you know, death is a constant. You, it's, you're right. It's always somewhere, you know, on, on our minds. You know, we've been through COVID. You know, like I say, I grew up with people getting shot and killed. Then I got to a certain age and I got people, friends that just start dying. Health issues. I'm like, what the heck is this? I'm like, we're supposed to get shot. At this time, this is what I'm thinking. Like, what do you mean? We're not getting shot. We dying from health complications. Then I get older and it's like, damn, then you have COVID. It's like, wait a second. More people are just dying out of nowhere. Why? Then the gun violence is still happening and sickness and all of these things. Then we're dealing with our own age. I just turned 50 and it's like, oh, I'm 50. I'm headed towards that. That kicks in with all these other parts. You know what I mean? So yeah. It's a constant. I want to ask you, when do you recall when was your first time having to deal with death where you know, like, okay, this, this is death? My grandma died. Mm. I was 19. And this is one of those stories that converges with all these different topics. I was 19. My grandma had been in really good health, actually. She was 86 years old. But at, at the age of 86, she developed diabetes for the first time. Mm. And she needed someone to help her, you know, help feed her, prepare her food. Um, you know, it was really affecting her health in a lot of ways. So she ended up coming to live with my mom because my mom was okay. the, the help. She was the person who helped people. Right. Um, but my mom had to work a lot. And so I was 19. I was just out of my first year of college. I had gone to college. And so I was at home. And my mom asked me to be my grandma's nurse. I was upset. I was a mm -hmm. teenager. I was like, um, our, our family has a lot of nurses in it. We really do. Right. So 
how is it that like, and my grandma has 10 children. How is mm. it that someone can come and do this as opposed to me who doesn't know anything? My mom just sighed and she was like, you know, my sisters, they don't want to help. Um, they have every excuse in the book, right? Don't want to help. It's too far away. I, I'm busy. You know, Candy's got it. You know, that's my nickname. Mm-hmm. So I'm feeding my grandma, but I'm also a child in a lot of ways. And so my grandma says she's not going to drink water. She she refuses to drink water. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, well, what do you want? She said, I want Kool-Aid. I make her Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. You know, every day I'm, I'm feeding her Kool-Aid. You know, she refuses to eat something. What do you want? Uh, I want some ramen noodle soup. Don't give me that. So I, I just make her what she wants. You know, I was told yeah. to help feed my grandma. Yeah. So at a certain point in that summer, my mom comes home, check on her mom, um, and she's not waking up. Mm. It's, a, it's an emergency. And I remember that specific summer day, I had a party on Galveston Beach. I wanted to go. It was a bonfire. So, mm. I, you know, I made grandma's food real quick. I got out the house. And by the time I found out what was happening, it was like the sun was coming up on the beach. I had had a great time with my friends. And mm. my mom said, you need to get to the hospital now. And I get to the hospital. I learned that my grandma is on her deathbed. Mm. And when I learned the reason why, and the doctor said that she had strict instructions to drink water, not mm. Kool-Aid, not soda, mm. not sweet iced tea to drink water and she needed to drink a lot of it so that the drugs that she was taking would be flushed out of her system so the simple fact that she was drinking kool-aid and not water contributed to like these other health complications which ultimately led to her death Mm. and i felt terrible i felt terrible for multiple reasons i felt terrible because i was the one who was in charge of that i felt terrible because i just had to go to this party you know, and I left my grandma because I don't know, maybe I could have done something, but I just felt terrible. And then my aunts were calling me, call, calling me like the the person who killed their mom. They're like, you what? Know? yeah, like I had an aunt who called my phone constantly, constantly, constantly just to yell at me about how wow, I killed grandma. And I, it felt terrible. I didn't understand. It took a lot. And then you know, for those of us who listen to the story, I came to a lot of conclusions. I was a child. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it wasn't my fault. Because yeah. other people could have helped. You know, even if yeah. even if they could only be there one day a week. If you have right. 10 children and only yeah. one of your children, you can make that work, but they didn't, right? Mm-hmm. I did yeah. the best that I could with what I understood. And my, right. you know, I I I can't blame myself for that. I still feel bad about it. I can't blame myself for that. But I will say that it led me to a lot of understandings about myself. It led me to depression. And Mm. and it was a very deep depression that like honestly started a little bit before that, but then just like got worse after that. So like I started Mm. thinking about my own death. Like um, I just, there's so many things that happened with regards to that situation that like really made me question even the very foundations of what I thought life was, you know, like, Mm. like my obligation to family, my family's obligation to me, Um, you know, so like, that's the first time I really had to think about death. It's interesting because I dealt like I I took care of my grandmother, you know, um, but I was in high school. So my grandmother had peritoneal dialysis. So my grandfather passed away. 
you know, uh, but let me talk about my first instance of dealing with death. But um, I was maybe 10 or 11, something like that. I don't really, I, it's hard for me to remember ages and times. I can't even remember that with my kids. It, it just doesn't run together for me like that. But I remember coming home, we'd come home from FedCo, me and my mom. And I don't think my sister was with me. My sister's like nine years older. And when we walk into my grandparents' house, you know, in, our, in the front room, there's a piano, a couch, old pictures. So in this little cubby area right there, I look on the ground and there's a blanket on the ground which looks like somebody's laying under a blanket. And I'm like, you know, damn, what is this? And so we go in and my mother's, you know, she's older, so she's like, what's going So my grandparents' friend, who they rented the upstairs apartment to, passed away while they were downstairs talking to them. So, you know, my grandparents, you know, they're older. So they came during the time my grandfather took them, you know, laid them out, covered them up. They're in there drinking coffee. You know what I mean? Talking. You know what I mean? Like this to them was like, this is how this, this is how we do this. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's sad, but this is what happens. And I remember being like, wow. And I had to go to my room at my grandparents' house, which was directly across from where this man, Mr. Cook, Brother Cooks was laying. So, you know, my door was closed, but I just remember being in that room like, damn, there's a dead person right outside this room. But when I think about it from that point forward, like death has been an interesting thing because I've seen it. You know, I've dealt with it like close and I've been around people that are passing away, you know, and, and stay with them. Like with my, my grandmother, I was there. I never forget it. My grandmother, um, when my grandfather passed away, I remember my grandfather walking off the porch and um, he was a reverend he, and he looked back and he waved bye to us and he just wasn't that type of person. He never was like, bye, you know what I mean? And I remember thinking like, huh, you know, I'm a teenager. I'm like maybe 15, you know, I'm like, or 16 at the time, something I'm like, wow, what was that about? But he passed away like two days later. So now I never forget it at the funeral. We're at the funeral. My grandmother looks back at me. She's like, Drew, it's just us. You know, she has other children and stuff too, but I grew up under my grandparents. So I moved in with my grandmother. So in high school, 11th, wait, 11th and 12th grade, you know, 10th, 11th, well, I don't know. You know, I was there with my grandmother. So I was, I was there the day that her son died. And I'll never forget that because she was sitting in a chair and she just, she wailed. And I came and I'm like, what's going on? And my uncle had passed away. And I saw a pain of a mother you know, having a son that's gone. And I, I pray to never feel that. And I don't want anyone to feel it, but I saw it. And I saw the things that came after that. My grandmother being sick and me having to stay home and feeling like what you felt. Like I couldn't, I couldn't go anywhere. You know, I had to, she had dialysis like twice a day or how many times I had to do it. Or I had to do this for her and do other things for her. And, you know, so we, I, I dealt with that all the way up to, you know, her passing away. You know, so, um, yeah, I get what you're saying. And, and I hopefully that's that's raised from you that you did something because you didn't. Because while I'm hearing this story, I'll tell you one thing that for sure, you gave your grandmother what she asked for. You know what I mean? That's what she wanted. And believe you me, at this stage in her life, she already knew she was on her way. She already knew that. And she was like, I'm going to do this the way I want to do it. Give me some damn Kool-Aid and some noodles. And there it is. You know what I mean? So you helped her on her journey. That's what you did. <laughs> you did that for her. I, I really feel good about that. 
Because it is true. I I mean, she could have been like, no, nah, the doctor said I want, they told me to drink water. No, she knew. She was like, no, what that damn water? Kool-Aid, please. She knew. Just like my grandmother would ask for stuff she wasn't supposed to have. And I would give it to her. You know what I mean? I would give it to her. Just like when I was a kid, I would ask for something I wasn't supposed to have. She would slide it to me. We returned the favor. We've done this for each other. This isn't new. You know what I mean? It's not new. I I have made peace with it. And I do know that my, my grandma was, she was more or less ready. Yeah. I think. And honestly, considering her children, she was just like, they're going to have to figure that out. You know? <laughs> yeah, a lot of times that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, um, there is. There's a sense of joy in that, and I and I think this leads me to the last last little thought that I had on life and death, because the the word authoritarianism came into my thoughts when I started thinking about how consistently death is brought to Black people. I used to say campaigns of terror, like generations and campaigns of terror, because as long as you're always afraid of death, then you will take your life very seriously, just like you like said I did. So you'll mm-hmm. do what they just say. You know, they say yeah. to go work, you'll just go work because you're always afraid of death. Right. And um, you know, America has gotten more and more authoritarian over time. And the thing that I remember listening to some like some radio, some podcasts about America and its authoritarianism, it's like um people who run the government people who run things that say one thing about morality but do the other and Mm -hmm. what the people who run things feel liberated from now is the lie that they are ever interested in doing the morally right thing Mm -hmm. they will outwardly say no we don't want to do that you know, instead of lying, saying like, oh, we care about all people, they'll just be like, no, we literally don't care about y'all. We want to do this. And that yeah. is what they feel is freedom, you know, but it just leads to this, this bigger conversation, this bigger story about how morality was never a part of it. It was never like America was supposed to be a city on a hill where Puritan Christians came and created this place full of milk and honey and all people are supposed to aspire to be as pure and as Christian as these white people. But the truth is it was never ever about that. Right. And um, so then the question is, someone, someone on, online said like the thing, the problem with this Buffalo massacre and talking about joy is that your joy never ever wants to talk about death. Like mm. some people were criticizing the fact that, you know, some some leaders were like, hey, let's be joyful in this time. Mm-hmm. But in all reality, I kind of I I kind of find that to like this this criticism that you can't be joyful in the face of massacres and death. If it's mm-hmm. always in my face, if it's mm-hmm. if if it's like Atlanta, if it's exactly yeah. like Atlanta where I live in this weird, surreal environment where everyone is always going to assume that I'm on my way to my death anyways, and they'll push me towards it, Mm -hmm. then why am I even engaging in that? Like, this is an absurd place, so I should just be happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. So, like, um, I was there for three of my children's births, Muhammad, Adam, and Miriam, 
you know, so I was there, you know, in the birthing room to be able to see them be born. A friend of mine passed away, Shawnee Mac, uh, you know, can't remember the year, but, you know, he had a Muslim funeral. So we went to bury him ourselves. So this is my first time actually being part of something like this, you know, uh, of going in and physically washing a body. And it was it was crazy because, you know, he had been shot. So a lot of people have not seen this. I think a lot of people that even shoot people and kill them do not know that the damage that a bullet does to a body and what it looks like when you walk away. People shoot, people leave, and you hear somebody's dead later. You know, I, I think more people, that should be something that's spread. Show people what a body looks like with holes in it. So next time a kid goes to grab a gun and wants to play around or thinking he wants to go do something, do know this, this, is, what's, this is what a body looks like and this is how foreign it is to see holes and things leaking out of your body. It's not, when you see it that way, you know for sure it's not meant to, that's not how this is supposed to be. But uh, it was interesting when I walked into the room, there was a smell that hit me and it immediately it was like, I, the smell, it was a smell that I'd, only, I'd smelt somewhere before, but it's, I'd only smelt it once before, I remember this. And then it hit me, it was the same smell that I smelled in the birthing room when my wife was giving birth. So that same smell, like blood or whatever it is, that same smell was there in death. And at that time it was like, okay, I've seen both sides of this thing. These are the same things that are happening, but we just look at them very, very differently, you know? Yeah. Life and death are, they're, they're the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's entering and exiting into a realm of life. Um, Honestly, I will say that that massacre did hit me hard, mm -hmm. but it only hit me hard in as much as the people who got killed were mostly black yeah. women. Like yeah. if, if we were to return to like this idea that this black woman is this anchor that has always traditionally held us together. These, these are older black women, people who were there taking care of their families, buying birthday cakes all sorts of stuff and that that yeah. was what really was very sad to me yeah that, it was very sad uh because i don't know if, but i i saw the video you know so i actually saw the video of the people being shot and i saw this and it, you know it's horrible you know and at when he gets to the last person as a white guy crouched you know in the aisle you know like he was going to check out and he goes and he puts the gun on him and mind you on the front side of his gun, it said nigger. You can see it. So that's the last thing he's looking at when he shoots. So he was specifically looking for black people without a doubt. So he he aims his gun at this guy. The guy says, no. He looks, he sees the guy is white. He tells him, oh, my bad, and walks away. Yeah. There's this thing that I heard, because all this is an existential crisis. The thinking about white supremacist terror, when is it gonna arrive at my doorstep? When is death gonna find me? Um, it's all existential. And what I learned is the only thing that you can do to help an existential crisis is something really practical. Mm. Something that's, you know, grounded basically. Um, and one of the things that I heard you say was, you know, in dealing with death, there's a lot of practical things that have to happen, like washing the body, 
Um, you know, if there's someone who, who you know actually died, doing like actual things that are going to help prepare you. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's where I want to end. Like practical, actual things that you can do. Because for me, the massacre, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm just going to be really honest. Like right now in my life, I find myself in a lot of really weird places. Like I'm raising a two-year-old, but I have to do it by myself. So I don't really interact with a lot of adults. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm with my child a lot. And um, that's hard on my mental health. Yeah. And they say when you're alone a lot, that's like really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And um I find myself just like in order to cope with this like real mental health problem, I just do a lot of really practical things and just try to focus on them, like taking a bath, cleaning up, you know? Yeah. And um, how do you deal with these things that are bigger than us? Mm. Like, what are some things that you do? Hmm. That's a good question. What do I do? You know, um, I pray, I, I think about my ancestors, you know, in, in, to be more specific, I think about my grandmother. You know, I think about my grandmother, I think about my grandmothers that I didn't, that I never met. I think about my grandfather. I think about the people that have went on, that loved me, that loved me and that will continue to love me and that are there for me. I, I truly do. And, and I feel like their presence with me, you know, and it, it helps me get through. It's like I introduced them to my children. You know, I, I think on, I introduce my children to their grandparents and other family members that they've never met, that they will never physically meet, you know? And I, I try to, um, I don't even say keep a balance, but kind of know that this is Atlanta. You know, I'm, we're in a place where, it's things happening around us that may seem weird and out of place, but this is this is what it is. This is this is what's happening with me. My life is filled with things that I think other people will be like, "What? Just, what happened to you? What happened?" That's what happened. I'm I'm working on becoming a better listener to the universe and to ancestor. When you get that voice, it might make you think that you're crazy. You know, it tells you to do something. Listen. You know what I mean? Do it. Even if even if you don't see something immediately that comes from it, it tells you, no, no, turn here, Shatana. It may not be the way you're going, but for some reason, that's what you need to do at the time. And every time we're not going to listen, but I'm working personally on listening because I have many years of not listening and listening and having things happen to me from the listen, but having to understand and balance that I might not see, you know, the fruit of listening to the ancestors and just the energy that's around me. I don't know if that answered your question for you, but that's that's how I'm rolling through right now. That's what I'm doing. And you know, and another thing I'm doing, I'm I'm continually following my dreams. You know, cuz I know that it's not just for me. My children are watching. My wife is watching, my friends, other people are watching. And if nothing else, people will be able to say like he he didn't quit. You know what I mean? I guess that's it. We cannot quit. You know, like when you tell me about how, you know, that you're there and, you know, you're having to do this by yourself. 
I, I felt lonely before. It's been many years ago. I remember being in college and I was there and there was nobody there. I'm in a little small town. I'm telling you, there was no one there. So my routine was I bought some Doritos and some, some stuff to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I had enough to make one a day, you know, so I would do that. I would have a system. I'll sit down, I'll watch TV. It was weird, but this is what I would do. And it would help me keep my sanity because even though it seemed like a very long time, the summer will be over soon and people were coming. So your summer will end, you know what I mean? In that sense, where it won't just be you. You know what I mean? So just keep your systems of what you're doing to make yourself feel good. And not even if it's not feeling good, to get to the next thing, you know what I mean? To get to the next day, to get to the next week, the next month, next year, you know? And obviously you're on a great path, look what you're doing. You know what I mean? You're doing work for people that, like you said, you're archiving. People are gonna look back years from now and hopefully watch this and they'll learn something from it, from something you and I talked about. Well, thank you for talking with me. And I yeah, agree. I, I realized that on my last, the last words is you can't take people with you forever. And, and in some cases, people really don't want to be with you forever, yeah. which mm -hmm. it goes, you know, people come and come and they go. Um, and I feel like having these conversations, even if I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but if I never get to see you again in my future, like this is a conversation I can take. and and really understand the world through. And, um, and you know, you're always gonna be a part of my community in that way. Yes, indeed. And um, the, before we go, can you tell me where we can find you? And oh, yeah, um, yeah how, can we, how can we stay in contact? Okay, so um, everywhere on the internet and social media, Risky Cereal, Risky and Cereal Like You Eat. There shouldn't be anyone else with that name. If so, they bid it. It's me, you know, and um, listen to our radio stations, community radio station called allwareradio.com. And I just said, you go to allwareradio.com, download the app, you know, and, uh, and listen, we have good things happening there. Shatana has a show. I have a show. You possibly could have one too. You, and that's where you can find me. And, you know, check out the, check out the things that I've done, the photography that I've done and the short films and things that I've shot. I think they're good. I'd like to know what you think too. But even in that, let me say, if you don't like them, I honestly really don't care because I love it and I enjoy to do it. I think that's part of the thing that we all should take in. If you love to do something, all right, just do it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Have a good You're evening. Welcome. Thank you very much. You too. All right, bye, true. All right, peace.